Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to the prophecy of Ezekiel. That's Ezekiel's prophecy and chapter 16. Ezekiel 16, and this morning we'll be reading the first 22 verses. Hear once again the word of God. Again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother an Hittite. And as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut. Neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pity to thee, to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood, live. I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased and waxen great. And thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, and thine hair is grown, whereas thou wast naked and bare. Now, when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God. And thou becamest mine. Then washed I thee with water, yea, I, th I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with broidered work, and shod thee with badger's skin, and I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments, and I put bracelets upon thy, thy hands, and a chain on thy neck. And I put a jewel on thy forehead, and earrings in thine ears, and a beautiful crown upon thine head. Thus wast thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk embroidered work. Thou didst eat of fine flour and honey and oil, and thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and placed the harlot because of thy renown, and pourest out thy fornications on every one that passed by. His it was. And of thy garments thou didst take, and deckest thy high places with diverse colors, and placed the harlot thereupon. The like things shall not come, neither shall it be so. Thou hast also taken thy fair jewels of my gold, and of my silver which I had given thee, and made to thyself images of men, and didst commit whoredom with them, and tookest thy broidered garments, and coverest them. And thou hast set mine oil, and mine increase, incense rather, before them. My meat also which I gave thee, fine flour, and oil, and honey, wherewith I fed thee, thou hast even set it before them for a sweet savour. And thus it was, saith the Lord God. Moreover, thou hast taken thy sons and thy daughters, whom thou hast borne unto me, and these hast thou sacrificed unto them to be devoured. Is this of thy whoredoms a small matter, that thou hast slain my children, and delivered them to, the, to cause them to pass through the fire for them? And in all thine abominations and thy whoredoms, thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth, when thou wast naked and bare, and wast polluted in thy blood. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to us this morning.
Beloved, I recognize that as we look at this text, at first brush it does not seem like a text we would go to to think about the sacrament of baptism. And in one sense, I'll readily admit that this text does not talk to us about the ordinance itself. This is not a text we can go to to learn from it the doctrine of baptism. But as we approach this text, I want to say two things. Uh, First of all, this morning I'm not preaching to Baptists. My aim here is not to convince you of an ordinance that all of you, or most of you, uh, believe is of God, as is expressed in our confession and our testimony. My interest this morning is to set before you, not just intellectually, but to lay upon our conscience this duty. To set before us, not just for our minds, but for our hearts, why it is we're doing what we're doing this morning when we come to the baptism of Mr. Hugh Silversides. And so that's why we come to this text. Because though this text doesn't really set before us the doctrine of baptism, it does certainly set before us the Lord's perspective of the church, how he sees his people. And it lays for us the foundation of how we're supposed to think about children in the church, children in the covenant. And of course, that lays for us the foundation of the sacrament that we're observing then this morning. And so our focus will not primarily be on the context of Ezekiel 16. It will be focused primarily on verses 20 and 21. And primarily on those words. Thou hast taken thy sons and thy daughters whom thou hast borne unto me. And these hast thou devoured unto them. These hast thou sacrificed unto them to be devoured. Is this of thy whoredoms a small matter? That thou hast slain my children. And delivered them to cause them to pass through the fire for them. Now, as we come to this text, just briefly, do let me set before you the context. Obviously, the prophet here, as he speaks as God's mouthpiece, is giving to the church underage a parable. A parable that is supposed to set before them, in imagery, a picture of what they are. And also, of course, what they've done. They are the one, this child who's in view in the beginning of the first of this first part of the chapter. Verses 1 to 14 show us a picture of the church as she is one who is rejected by the nations. She's one who was absolutely rejected by all. There was none to have compassion upon her. And when the Lord saw her, when the Lord saw this company of people, did he see anything that was inherently desirable in them? Of course, the answer to that is no. All that he could see in them was something that was contemptible. Something that was actually quite worthy of loathing. Something that certainly did not deserve any compassion. This is how the prophet conveys to the church underage her identity before the Lord approaches her in gracious covenant. But then as you move through that text, you'll see what the Lord does. And it's striking the imagery that the Lord uses. First, he comes to us in this act of condescension to show that his relationship with the church was that of a father. The relationship that he sets before us is one who is fostering a child. And so he earnestly loves this one who is rejected and despised. He earnestly loves and comes to this one in such a way to provide for all of her good. To secure for all that was for her real benefit, even when no one else would do it. And certainly no one else could. In other words, friend, what the prophet sets before us here is free paternal love. God's free and fatherly care for the church. But then he adjusts the analogy. It's almost as though that weren't sufficient. It's almost as though he needed to say something more. Because not only does he approach this one as a father, as a foster father, he comes to the church and he says, I also stand before you like a husband. I come before you as one who is wedded to you. My friend, what you see here is one analogy heaped upon another. It shows us that the love that the Lord here is conveying to the church in this parable simply cannot be confined to one analogy. It's more. It's more than simply the paternal relationship as we think of it. It's so much more. And so he describes himself as being a husband to the church. Friends, it's a striking thing, isn't it? Because in these first 14 verses, you have this picture that Israel is unclean. 
She was radically unworthy. Nothing good to be found in her. And yet she is the recipient not only of grace and not only of free grace, but of free grace that is genuinely inestimable. Free grace that is a depth, friend, that you and I can never sound. This is how the prophet sets before us Israel's identity and the Lord's dealings with her. Now, as we continue in the parable, verses 15 to 34 create for us an entirely new section. Before, the emphasis was, of course, upon the Lord and his dealings with the church. But as we come to the latter portion of this parable, something changes. And, of course, the emphasis now is placed upon Israel's dealings with God. How does the church, underage, respond to such grace? As you perhaps detected as I read, the emphasis in verses 14 and 15 changed drastically. Thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord. And then look at the 15th verse. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty and placed the harlot because of thy renown. Something has changed radically. God says the only reason you were beautiful was because it was my beauty that had been placed upon you. But you began to trust in something that was not mine. Trust in your own renown. Trust in a beauty of your own contrivance. And where does this lead? The friend, just as we saw in the first part of this passage, the prophet comes to Israel with the most personal and affectionate terms to describe God's dealings with the church. He comes in this next session just as personally, just as affectionately, to set before Israel her apostasy. She is not, the prophet would have us know, she is not one who has simply rejected the law as it came to her as a covenant of words. She is not just a people who rebelled like all of the other nations. She is a child who has spurned her father's care. A husband who has been, she has spurned a husband who has been so gracious to her by giving the gifts that he's given to her, to her lovers. Friend, I know this is an analogy that you and I are so very aware of, but just for a moment, contemplate how powerful that is supposed to hit us. Friend, this should be heart-wrenching as we read it, shouldn't it? This is how the Lord will reveal to us his perspective of his people's sin. My friend, that's the context. And so as we come to our text, verses 20 and 21, we have the prophet continuing to give us, in those personal and affectionate terms, Israel's descent into apostasy. I want you to notice that in two things, we we have two things in the text. We have, first of all, the crime, and then we have a question. And so as I direct your attention back to verse 20, you have the crime set before us. What has Israel done? Well, she has sacrificed them, that is her children, to be devoured, to be consumed. Verse 21, to pass through the fire. And of course, what the prophet is alluding to here is Molech worship. Child sacrifice, where the child is offered up to this pagan Canaanite deity, first of all to be slain, and then for its body to be consumed in the fire. A fire, by the way, that was was created within the idol. The child laid upon its hands as the fire consumed them. That's the crime. But then that crime is followed by a question. And friend, the question is, it is supposed to hit us with some profundity. He says here, Is this of thy whoredoms a small matter? The striking is, in this entire text, this is the only question we have. As the prophet is dealing as God's mouthpiece with the people of God, this is the only time he steps back and asks them the question. And of course the reason why is because he's prosecuting a case. But it's after mentioning this particular heinous crime, That as it were, the Lord's advocate steps back and asks, is this a small thing? In other words, do you see how grievous this is? Surely you see how heinous it is to do what you've just done, what he describes for us in these two verses. 
The sense is, friend, that this is something uniquely grievous to the Lord. And we need to ask the question, why? After all, prior to this point, the apostle, sorry, the prophet has given to us various things that the people of God have done. They've already erected high places. They've already engaged in idol worship. But it's only at this moment that he declares himself absolutely astounded at the heinousness of Israel's apostasy. It's at this moment, and it's at this moment that he sees something of a pinnacle to her apostasy. He sees something of a depth to her sin. And so why? Why after all that's gone before is this the point? And the answer lies in our text. Thou hast taken thy sons and thy daughters, whom thou hast borne unto me. Verse 21. Thou hast slain my children. What's striking, friend, in this text is the reason why the question is arising to us is not because they violated the sixth commandment. It's not just that they violated God's express command not to kill. It's not just that they have slain those who were created in the image of God. It's not just that they violated the law of nature. And it's not even the case that they've just violated the light of nature. I mean, this is what the light of nature teaches, according to Lamentations 4. Even the sea monsters draw out the breasts. They give suck to their young ones. Even sea monsters, says the prophet, speaking to the same group of people, even sea monsters care for their young. The light of nature teaches that this is not how you treat your young. But even that, friend, transgressing the light of nature, is not cited in our text. What is? Friend, they have consumed, it's really the sense of the text, the Lord's children, those that were born unto him. The point is, friend, this was not only a violation of the sixth commandment as the prophet brings it to them. It was also a violation of the first. These belonged to him. They were born to him. These ones were offered were the Lord's children. My friend, I want to draw a few inferences from that. As I said just before, what we have in this text is the idea that this is the zenith of idolatry. This is given to us as the death of their apostasy. And the idea, friend, is just this. It is so because they have slain the Lord's children. Yes, they were, thy, they were their children. But they were born unto Jehovah. But our focus this morning is not on Israel's crime. In fact, we won't even really be returning to that. Our focus is on precisely how the Lord identifies these ones. These ones who were born within the visible church. What is their identity? Well, friend, they are members of the visible church, says the Lord They are those who are considered born unto the Lord. They are considered the Lord's children. That precisely is the reason why Israel's sin was so aggravated. And so it's fitting for us as we come to the sacrament of baptism to contemplate how the Lord sees such children. Such children born in the context of the visible church. And so we'll do so by taking up the steps. And we'll find here, and this is our principal doctrine, that children of the professors belong to the Lord and are to be treated accordingly. Israel failed to do this, and here the Lord's advocate stands before them, urging them to remember. This is precisely how they should have thought of things. Children of professors belong to the Lord and are to be treated accordingly. And under this heading, I want us to consider, first of all, the position of these children. First of all, the position. If you look again at verse 20, you'll notice the words, they are thy sons and thy daughters. In other words, the Lord acknowledges that they come through natural procreation. They do, in some sense, belong to these parents. He emphasizes that. But but then you move to something of a progression. In the middle of that text, he says, these are those children that were born unto me. There's the change. Not only are they children that come to you naturally, But they are mine, born unto me in a very specific way. 
That's the first step of progression. The second step takes place in verse 21. They are born unto the Lord such that they are called His children, particularly. Friend, this shows us the position of these children. They belong to the Lord. In other words, as you look throughout the Scriptures, this idea of belonging to the Lord is integrally tied to the idea of sanctifying. And so, for instance, whenever the Lord speaks in Exodus 13, He speaks about those who are sanctified to the Lord. He says, those that are sanctified to the Lord, they belong to Me. And you read it vice versa. Those who belong to the Lord are those who are described as sanctified, set apart to the Lord. And the Lord says, this is the identity of your children. They are set apart to Me. They are sanctified to Me. They belong to Me really. Now, friend, that teaches us, of course, that children of professors are sanctified to the Lord. But we need to ask the question, in what sense do we mean that? Well, I only have to direct you to what you have in the New Covenant. You remember, as the Apostle is dealing with the issues of a believer and an unbeliever occupying the same home, note what he says to the believing spouse. Your children were once unclean, but now are they holy. Now are they holy? Friend, I want you to note what the Apostle does not say in this text, first of all. He does not say that they may become holy in the future. Neither does he say that they, that they are called even to be holy. He says emphatically in 1 Corinthians 7.14, they are in some sense already holy. Now what does that word mean, holy? It means precisely what I said before, to be set apart to the Lord. That is what it means. If they belong to the Lord. And friend, I want you to understand this. It's the very self-same thing that God says to the people here. What the Apostle says to the church in the New Covenant, your children are holy. That is precisely the Apostle, the prophet's difficulty with the church underage in Ezekiel 16. They were holy, they belonged to the Lord, and they were not treated as such. In the one covenant of grace under both administrations... Children of professors are considered belonging to the Lord. Both Old and New Testament say precisely the same thing. Now friend, how do we understand this? How can we understand that they are sanctified or belong to the Lord? To understand that, we do need to look at the scriptures further. Note what the the prophet says in Deuteronomy 14. Moses speaking. For thou art an holy people. Note that. They are holy as Moses speaks to them. Unto the Lord thy God. And the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. My friend, he's saying already they are holy in some sense. Does that mean that they were all converted? Well, friend, what's striking is to the self-same congregation, Moses says this, Deuteronomy 10.16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. The idea is, friend, they were not all circumcised in heart. They were not all holy in the sense that they had clothed with Christ by faith and had His righteousness applied to them. That's not the sense at all. So in what sense can we talk about this kind of holiness that belongs to people where not all that are of that number are actually converted? Well, friend, the reality is what we have in this text as it pertains to Old and New Covenant alike is the reality that there is such a thing as a federal or covenantal holiness. A federal or an external holiness, in which externally, men are devoted or separated unto the Lord. And that's precisely the sense we're supposed to take our text this morning. They are dedicated to the Lord in an external, in a visible sense. And what's striking is, friend, then, we're supposed to understand that what you have, what is said of the children of of Israel, in our text, friend, pertains just as truly to the children in our day who are born to professing believers. To the children of Israel, the Lord says this, you have borne these children unto me, they're sanctified, they're set apart to me. The the apostle to the same, to those who profess the same faith, turns to them and says, your children are holy. They too, separated to the Lord. But friend, how do we understand this text? And this is the part where our consciences and our hearts really should be moved. When the Lord says that these ones are sanctified, set apart to him, how should we think of that? 
to really get some answer from, just think throughout the scriptures, the various places where you find things sanctified to the Lord. Take, for instance, Zion. Here's what the Lord says. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. The Lord at various times calls Zion his hill. Calls Zion various times his holy hill. That is something dedicated, sanctified to him. And what does he say here? He is jealous over her. That's the Lord's disposition to that hill that has been sanctified, set apart to him. Take the temple. The prophets will speak, Jeremiah 50, 28, about the Lord's vengeance for his temple. That building that was dedicated, sanctified, declared holy by God, sanctified, set apart for him. Here's his disposition toward it. He will bring vengeance upon those who destroy it. And then, friend, even go further, come to his very name. His name that is holy. The Lord is jealous for his holy name. Ezekiel 39, 25. And friend, this is applied to covenant children in a powerful way. When you come to Leviticus 18. Thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molech. Neither shalt thou profane the name of the Lord of thy God. I am the Lord. To destroy a covenant child, says the Lord, is to profane his name. When we look at this text, friend, we are to recognize that the Lord is then jealous over all that is sanctified to him. It is a profaning of the name of God. To destroy covenant children. Not only a sixth commandment violation. But a first. A friend. If this is how the Lord sees them. If this is how the Lord sees children born to him by professing believers. As parents. And I'll direct this directly to ourselves. In this room. How do we see the children that we've born into the Lord? Do we see them as things that are holy and set apart to God? I mean, that's really the point of the text. That's how God says he sees these children. Set apart to him, just as his temple was set apart to him. Set apart to him, just as his name is set apart to him. Do we see our children in the same light? Friend, we ought to. We ought to see that our God is jealous even over those that are born unto him. Do we as parents see that, friend, are we careful then? In our parenting. Are we careful not to deal with something that has been sanctified unto the Lord. In a way that is beneath that calling. This text calls us to be very careful. How we handle such holy things. How we think about those that have been born unto the Lord. Now these ones have been dedicated to the Lord already. Um, And that's why baptism is not really a dedicational service. This is not identical to a service of dedication. They are already the Lord's. Already his. Do we see them as such? And then secondly, friend, do we remind our children that that's the case? We'll come back to that in just a moment. But not only is it incumbent upon parents to see these children as dedicated to God already, but friend, do you remind your children to... You belong to God. The temple belonged to the Lord. Zion belonged to the Lord. You belong to the Lord. He has a solemn claim upon you. Do you remind them of that? But that brings us to our second heading. And that is the privilege that accrues to those who are born in covenant. And to this I direct yourselves back to the question. The prophet turns to the people of God here and he says, is this a small matter? And the point that he's saying is, there is something of an absurdity in how you've dealt with these children. There is something really, not only not only heinous of itself, but it really is the antithesis of how you ought to behave in. There's a sense in which here the prophet comes to the people of Israel and he says simply this, you have borne these children unto me and you have not treated them Accordingly, you have not treated them as I see them. 
And so, friend, there is this sense, even in this text, where there is a solemn obligation that if the Lord sees these children as belonging to Him, there is that solemn obligation that these children are treated accordingly. They are treated as those who have been dedicated to God. Treated as those whom the Lord says they are mine. And so, friend, we understand from this that children of professors are entitled to certain covenant privileges. And we see these in the Scriptures. Uh, Friend, notice, first of all, uh, before I go any further, as Christians, is it not an inestimable privilege that we can take a text like Amos 3.2 and apply it quite specifically to ourselves? What I mean there is what the prophet says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. There he says, of course, to Israel these things. But in one sense, and by just application, friend, every covenant home can lay hold of that text. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. In the sense that you, your family, that that should have been lost like so many others are around you, could have been left in darkness. But you have been granted this inestimable privilege that you have the Lord as your God in this home. A Gentile home can now claim this in the covenant. Friend, what a privilege is that? But then as we think about those children born into such a home, there are certain privileges to which they're entitled. And the Word of God defines these things to us very clearly. Just give you perhaps the most basic. Note how the Word of God describes the obligation for the child to be instructed. The child is supposed to be set before the ordinary means of grace, and so from the Word... The Lord commands thus. These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, speaking to parents. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Deuteronomy 6. Here's what the Lord says. It is a solemn command upon parents to set these things before children. It is their privilege to be under such instruction, under the instruction of the Word. And of course, the Apostle says nothing different. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is a command from Almighty God. It is something to which covenant children are entitled. It is a privilege of the covenant that they are due. Now, friend, when we understand this, we understand that This is not something that is supposed to issue then only out of paternal love. I think too often we think in those terms. We shouldn't. The text of scripture is giving these things to us as commands. Which means you are not only derelict. If you fail to do this in terms of the second table of the law. As they are issued as a command from on high. Friend you are derelict in the first table of the law. If you fail to do what the Lord here commands. It is a solemn religious obligation that these privileges be set before those whom the Lord claims are born unto him. Now, friend, it also is the case that the sacrament of initiation, if you like, also belongs to them as a privilege, as they are children born in the covenant. Now, friend, the covenant is described for us in this way. This is my covenant which he shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. That circumcision was a privilege that belonged, says the Lord Jehovah to Abraham, to all of his seed and all that was born in his house. It was entitled to them. They had a right to it. It belonged to them in a real sense. But what's striking is, as you look throughout the text of Scripture, especially when the Apostle deals with this Abrahamic covenant in Galatians 3, he says this self-same covenant is what believers today are part of. A covenant that belongs to believers, to professing believers, and also to their offspring, to their children. And so, friend, that sacrament of initiation, in the Old Covenant it was circumcision, in the New Covenant it is baptism, it belongs as a solemn rite to those children who are born unto the Lord, born unto Him in this sense. My friend, again, this is why baptism is not a dedication. The reason why children are baptized is because they are already dedicated unto God. The Lord already sees them as His, belonging to Him. 
Baptism is simply applying to them that sacramental sign to which they are entitled, which the Lord God commands. And friend, to illustrate this, it's important for me to remind you. I think for those who hold our position, most often we are apologetic as we deal with our brothers and sisters who are Baptists. Friend, we shouldn't be. We're not doing what we're doing this morning simply because we have permission from the word of God to do so. We're doing so because it is a solemn command. And friend, to withhold a covenant privilege such as the sacrament from those whom the Lord says it is due is a solemn sin. I said that with emphasis for, for, for a point. It is a sin not to do so. And to illustrate this, friend, allow me to point this only to you from the book of Exodus, the fourth chapter. The Lord met Moses. This is immediately after Moses has been commissioned. The Lord said, the Lord says the word of God, met him and sought to kill him. Now, friend, Moses here at this point in time was just told from the burning bush that he was commissioned by God to go and set before Pharaoh the command, let my people go. That's Moses. And then immediately afterward, immediately after his commissioning, then the Lord comes to him to kill him. Why? Zephora took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely thou art a bloody husband. Thou art to me. So he let him go. Even Moses would be pursued by the Lord Jehovah if he did not apply the sacramental sign to those to whom the Lord had given it. It is a solemn thing, friend, when God says these children have been born unto me and we withhold from them that which God has given them. And so, friend, we understand infant baptism here is a solemn duty, not just a permissive activity. It is an obligation that narrowly concerns every single believer. But thirdly and finally as we close, there is promise. There is promise in this text. Again, I direct your attention to how the prophet looks at the identity of these children. These are children, he says here, that have been born unto him. That is, they are covenanted to be the Lord's. Well, friend, how does that happen? The only way that a man can rightly enter into covenant with God is if God is the one who initiates the covenant. That is the only way. The promise only begins on God's side. And so if they are born unto the Lord, if that is their identity, friend, you have to recognize that there lies a promise behind it. To be the Lord's friend is to enter into that promise. To enter into that covenant. And so, we read as we read from Genesis 17, I will be a God unto thee, and thy seed after thee. There's the promise. Well, what's the promise given to the new covenant? This promise is unto you and to your children. Acts 2.39 The promise belongs to both, to those who are professing believers in the visible church and to their children. But we need to ask the question, don't we? What promise belongs to visible Professors. There are those, of course, who would teach that the promise is for eternal salvation. That that is what is signed and sealed in the sacrament. But friend, the reality is, as you look throughout the Old and New Testaments, that's simply not the case. It's not the case that everyone who is circumcised is saved. Not the case that everyone who is baptized is saved. In fact, friend, just think of the case of Judas Iscariot. Think of the case of Simon Magus. Both men baptized. Both declared to be sons of perdition. So what is promised? What is promised in the sign and seal of baptism? I think Samuel Rutherford succinctly puts it to us this way, and I think helpfully. In the sacrament, the Lord promiseth life and forgiveness shall be given to those who are externally in the covenant. Provided they believe. But the Lord promiseth not a new heart and grace to believe to these that are only externally in covenant. And so, friend, what is signed and sealed in baptism? What is not signed and sealed is the promise of regeneration. Friend, it is a terrifying thing 
that so many circumcised were uncircumcised in heart. So many, even in hell, had the waters of baptism applied but were not plunged in the fountain of Christ's blood. But what was signed and sealed even to them? It was just this. To them particularly, the Lord promised, if you would believe, if you would believe, lay hold of Christ as he is clothed in the gospel, you will be saved. A friend, that promise is made generally, of course, in the proclamation of the gospel, but to a covenant child in baptism, that promise is made very specifically. And yes, of course, it's always conditioned on faith. But it's a solemn thing, isn't it? That these ones have applied to them that promise, particularly. It's a solemn thing because it's an encouraging thing, isn't it? As they reflect on their baptism, that should incite them to lay hold of Christ by faith as he's offered through the preaching of the word. Oh, but friend, it's also a solemn thing if they reject such a promise that has been so intimately made to them. That is what has been promised. The promise has been made absolutely, but the enjoyment of that which is promised is conditional, and conditional on faith. And so, friend, what is the sacrament? A sacrament, you could liken something like a seal on an official paper. When we look at baptism, what we see here is the Lord, as it were, in one sense, ratifying that which he has promised afresh. Setting before the people of God the certainty of that promise. Those who look to Christ will not be ashamed. Those who look to Christ by faith will certainly be saved. That is signed and sealed in the sacrament. And friend, even though the promise was obviously authentic before because it comes to us as the God who cannot lie, it is as it were for the strengthening of our faith, as Hebrews 6 puts it, that he does so solemnly once again confirm it to us. But friend, this leads us to a point of examination. We've meditated on how God examines and God and how God looks at those children who are born unto him. And I've already addressed the parents. But friend, I would fail as a pastor if I didn't address those who are baptized members of the church. This is how the Lord looks at you, friend. He looks at you as one who has been born unto him. Solemnly dedicated to him and to his service. And friend, as we look at this passage, of course the Lord comes to those parents who devoted them to the fires. He comes to them with rebuke of the strongest kind. But what of you? You who have been baptized, you who are dedicated to the Lord already. Are you dedicating yourself to the fire? Are you dedicating that which has been already devoted to God, to perdition, to sin? To the world, to the lake of fire. Friend, it's a solemn thought. You say, well, it's just my soul. It's just my soul that's in danger here. Friend, you are, as you are dedicated to God, you are claimed as His. The obligation is for you to acquiesce in that. And if you don't, you are committing something that has been sanctified, set apart to God, to the flame. This is a solemn call. I understand that it is, but it's an earnest call. Do not dedicate that which has been dedicated to God, to the fires of sin and of wrath. And so come to Christ. Friend, what we are to observe this morning in the sacrament is Christ, signed and sealed to us afresh. Christ as he's clothed in the gospel. Christ as he sets before us the benefits of the covenant of grace. That's what we observe. That's what we celebrate this morning. And so, friend, it's an invitation, just as it is at the table, it's an invitation to come to Christ afresh. It's an invitation to take hold of those promises that are made in Christ afresh. And so, friend, for observers, for those of us who will observe the sacrament, This ought to lead us to meditate much on the privilege to be able to say we belong to the Lord. To be solemnly dedicated to God. Friend of the world, it may seem so burdensome. But to the believer, whenever he reflects on this obligation, he simply says that Christ spoke rightly when he said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. To delight 
to acquiesce in that obligation certainly befits those who observe the sacrament. But also as we observe the sacrament, we need to see here, signed and sealed to believers who look to him by faith, is the reality that Christ is only showing himself afresh, not only through scriptures, but through sacrament, to be yours. His cleansing benefits as you look to him by faith are really signed and sealed to be yours. Friend, that should cause us to rejoice as we reflect. All these things are sealed to you. As the larger catechism puts it, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein Christ hath ordained with the washing of water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal of engrafting into himself, of remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit, of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life, and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy unto the Lord's. Friend, as we observe, we ought to reflect much on these things to improve our own baptisms, as we see here once again what it is to belong to the Lord, to have all of these saving benefits ours as we look to Christ by faith. And may we do so with his help. Amen. Let's respond by returning once again to the throne of grace together. Let us pray. Almighty and ever-blessed God, we come, Father, thankful that you are the God who is faithful, a God who is pleased in the covenant of grace to make all promises yea and amen in your Son, and a God who has promised for the building up and the edification of your people, not only to set these promises before us in Scripture, but to sign and to seal them sacramentally. And so, Father, as we come to the observance of the sacrament this morning, Lord, we ask that your hand would be upon us, uh, that we would see this not as bare ritual, but we would see it truly as the ordinance of God, that we would see it, Father, as that which you have ordained for the encouraging of your people, for the exaltation of your name. And so, Father, bless us now as a congregation of your people, as we see these things, as we observe the sacrament, Father, may we do so always with an eye to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all of his blessed name. Amen. Please be seated. At this time, I would ask uh, Mr. and Mrs. Timothy Silversides to come forward uh, to bring Hugh along with you.
And the second question is rather long. There are four items, so at the end I'll just ask if you accept the control. Do you promise to perform the following parental duties? To pray that your child may be renewed and brought to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as signified in the sacrament? To seek that your child may come to know the Holy Scriptures and to know the duty of committing himself to God? To rule well your household, exercising parental authority with firmness and love, setting the example of a holy and consistent life, and attending with regularity of personal, family, and public worship. To see that your child may, while young, come to understand the history, doctrine, and practice of the Reformed Presbyterian Church, and may be helped to experience the blessings of loving obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you so promise? And now the congregation. Uh, please indicate a sense by raising your right hand. You are asked, do you promise to pray for this kind of child and to seek by example and precept to encourage him to walk in the ways of the Lord? This being the case, we do come now to the sacrament itself. And friend, I know we've spoke, spent now just the better part of an hour meditating on this, but just allow me to encourage you to think as we observe the sacrament. And here we have signed and sealed for us so many things. And one of the things that is signed and sealed is just this, that Christ is really that fountain that was opened for sin and for unholiness. That's what we see here. And for whom was that fountain opened? It was not opened for the moralists. It was not opened for the self-righteous. It was opened, friend, for even the greatest of sinners. But it's signed and sealed to you this morning is just this. That Christ is yours as you humbly take hold of him by faith. Acknowledging all that you have from him is only for free grace. Confessing your sins humbly. Looking to him as both Savior and Lord. That, friends, what we see. Even here before us this morning. Before we come to the sacrament itself, uh, we will come together in prayer. I would ask that you remain standing through prayer. Uh, we will pause um, for the administration of the sacrament and then we will resume prayer afterward. So if you would please stand once more as we come to the throne of prayers. Our gracious and merciful God, we come, Father, thankful that you are a God who through scripture and through sacrament, sign and seal every promise that is made to your people. O Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has made open a fountain for sin and for uncleanness. Father, we thank you that even this morning we see set before us a testimony to that fact. O Heavenly Father, we need this continued cleansing. We need still, Heavenly Father, to know what it is to be purified from the blood of Christ. And so gracious God, we pray that as we observe the sacrament, those of us who are here and baptized would improve our baptism by, re by renewing as it were our vows to Christ, by looking to Him to, by faith afresh. And, O oh, Father, as we come to the sacrament and think of you specifically, Father, we pray that your blessing will be upon you. Father, we pray that in time, the grace that is signed and signified to you and know by experience. Lord, we pray that in time you will be walking with the Savior. And in the meantime, gracious God, we pray that you be with him and with Allison, with his extended family and with his congregation. And together we seek to set before him his obligations to God. And Father, we pray that in your grace we would see, even in time to come, even shorter, evidences of a life change, evidences of circumcision and baptism that is applied to the heart. Father, we long for this. We pray for it in our hearts. And so be gracious to us. And we ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please say your child's full name. Hugh Patrick Silversides. Hugh Patrick Silversides.
You by your silver side, I baptize you into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, let's pray. Our gracious and merciful God, we do thank you that you are a God who is so kind, a God who is so pleased to look upon poor, hell deserving sinners. Those who are unworthy of the least grace. Those who are contemptible of themselves. Have your name solemnly placed upon them. To sign them the seal that salvation is offered really in Christ. O Heavenly Father, we pray uh, that even as we observe this this morning, Father, we pray that these things would cause us to go to Christ afresh, to rejoice in the salvation that is in Him. Confess our absence of forgiveness, and to pray only for the increase of His kingdom. Father, we pray for you. Lord, we ask that your hand will be upon them afresh. Lord, we ask that in times of reflection on the baptism, Lord, we pray that those reflections will hold out to Him Christ as He's offered, Christ as He's offered for you, Christ as He's offered in full sufficiency for all that is necessary for His life, for time, and for eternity. Well, Heavenly Father, be gracious as well to this heavenly Father. Let them know, too, Father, that not only is it the case that you are a God who is pleased to make your people solemnly obliged to his law, but you are a God as well who is pleased to promise to you. And so, Father, as they look at Christ, may they know by experience those precious promises that they seek to train up all of their children and will be Peter and will be in the theater of their children. Be gracious to them, we pray. Be gracious with us as we continue in worship this morning. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue in worship, um, please remain standing and take up our psalters this morning and turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, singing here the eighth part, which begins at verse 57. This is the cry of those, ought to be the cry of those who are baptized. Thou, my short portion, art alone. Which I did choose, O Lord. I have resolved and said that I would keep thy holy word. With my whole heart I did in truth thy face and favor free, according to thy gracious word. Be merciful to me. As we seek to improve our own baptisms this morning, this is what we renew that the Lord and He alone is the portion that we choose. The praise of our God, we take up these words Psalm 119, verses 57 to 64. And please then remain standing for the benediction.
receive now the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen.